It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 607, where we investigated the second half of the crime scene where the murder of Jim Melgar occurred. Now, in 606, we covered the entire house other than the master suite, and in this week's episode, we covered the master suite other than the closet where Jim's body was found. We're going to be covering that this coming Sunday. Uh, now, we've got a lot of work to do catching up for me being out of town, and we're also trying to put together a follow-up episode, which hopefully you have already heard by now. This, we're recording this on Tuesday morning, and I've got a call scheduled with Ed tomorrow morning at 8, so he can talk to you guys all directly, so you can listen to him talk about his release from prison and how things have been going for the last week. But for now, we are going to be answering questions that Mike has put together that you all have given him from episode 607. That's right, Bob. We're going to switch it back over to the Melgar case. Stacy's got two questions. Okay. Her first question is, is the white shirt that was found in the bathtub in evidence, and can it be tested? I think that the answer to both of those questions is yes. Uh, we're going to get into, I'm, try, I'm still trying to decide out the order of episodes, uh, because we need to do the ME episode where we cover um, all of Jim's injuries. We also need to cover a forensics episode as far as what all was collected as evidence. And I also want to bring uh, Jim and Sandy's daughter Liz on the show to answer a lot of questions, but I want to kind of time that right to where we have enough for her to talk about. So uh, we will get into that. Uh, as far as I know, I'm I'm 99% certain that the shirt was collected into evidence, and I have not seen any DNA results from it yet, if it's been tested at all, but we should be figuring that out as soon as we do the forensic episode and we dig into those. Okay, and our next question is, can you clarify if any activity was seen on the neighbor's video camera from the night of the murder? Also, have those tapes been preserved? The tapes have been preserved. We did see them when we were in the prosecutor's office, uh, the DVDs of them. We can't confirm what's on them because we haven't seen them yet. We're supposed to be getting those. I'm going to be getting in touch with the gentleman at the DA's office that's been helping us out. It's been several weeks. So anytime now, we should be getting our, our request back in from him. But from reading the reports, it sounds like there was really nothing they could get off of them. But I was also told that they confirmed no one drove into the driveway. So we'll have, we'll have to see when we get those videos. But they were preserved, yes. Okay, and we've got a couple questions from Natalie. First, she asks, did they take a photo of the, quote, same type of knife that was in the kitchen drawer? 
they did take a photo of that knife. They took a photo of the drawer, all the knives in the drawer, and then they singled out the one that was the same brand as the one that was found in the bathroom. And and on that topic, uh, Liz told me that one of those knives that she and her ex-husband actually um, won that as some kind of prize for, I don't remember what she said it was for, but she said that one of those knives, the one that was in the drawer, not the one that was the murder weapon, was hers. Which, which throws a whole other twist into this, because if that's the case and there was not a set, which as I mentioned in the episode, there's no evidence that there was a set of those knives. There's only two in the entire house of that brand. One is in the kitchen drawer, which Liz says was hers that she had won or, to, you know, it was a door prize or something. Uh, and then the one that was left in the bathtub. So uh, we'll see how that plays out. But those are the only two of that, of that brand. So if Liz is correct about that, then that adds further corroboration to the idea that they did not have a set of those particular knives. Next, she says, is there an actual photo of the glove that was in the bathroom garbage? Not that I've seen, and I was really frustrated by that because it was it was mentioned, and you guys have seen all the photos that I have from the bathroom. And of course, it's mentioned in the report. There's no photo of it, so I don't know if it's like a medical-type glove, exactly what it is. I think the language just was that it was a rubber glove or a plastic glove. Uh, but I have not seen a photo of that glove, no. Uh, and she also wants to know more about the white shirt. She says, I know it was slightly smaller than what Sandy would normally wear, but she's wondering if she would ever own anything like that. It's hard to say, and from talking to Liz, she said that she's not sure. And as I mentioned, it's hard to talk to Sandy. I did just get a letter from Sandy. I'm going to write her another one asking her some questions, and hopefully we can talk again. And according to Liz, it just depends on the time of day if you can actually hear her when she calls. But from what Liz told me, to make sure I clarify this, her mom typically wore large shirts, and Liz actually had in her possession one of her mom's shirts, and she checked and verified it was, in fact, a large. But to be fair, uh, from what Liz said, and I'm sure all of you women know, and even men too in some cases, the brand name has a lot to do with the size. So you might wear a large on one size, a medium in the other. So with large being so close to medium, we can't conclusively say that she couldn't have worn a medium shirt. And, of course, there's no inventory of the shirts that were in the closet. That would have been a simple thing to check very quickly uh, by Maurice Carpenter when he was doing the crime scene investigation to go through and verify, are the other shirts in the house mediums, larges, what size they are? But, unfortunately, we don't have that. But we do have access to um, the, my, my next trip down there. I think that we have a storage unit available to us that probably has most of Sandy's clothes. So that's one thing that I want to do is go through and see what sizes they are. And continuing further on with the, with the shirt, according to Sandy, she doesn't think that's her shirt. She said that's not her. She doesn't recall having a shirt like that. And some people have said, you know, how would someone not notice if shirts were missing? Because, you know, my one of the hypotheses that I was throwing around was the fact that if the person wearing the shirt got blood on them, threw it in the water, that they would just grab another shirt out of the closet to wear out of the house. And someone was asking, well, then, you know, how would she not know there's a shirt gone? But I have to assume that person hasn't looked at the crime scene photos because there's got to be, what, 300 shirts? Yeah, definitely. It's a big walk-in closet covered top to bottom with uh, shelves and clothes on hangers. And there's just shirts upon shirts upon shirts. So I know that me personally and my wife, unless it was like one of her favorite shirts, wouldn't notice if one shirt was missing. Next, she asks, where is Jim's cell phone? That's a good question. And again, we're going to have to go through the crime scene, the forensic reports to see what was collected. But from what we've seen so far, there was just the one cell phone, I think, that was... But I could be wrong about that, because I don't remember wondering where the cell phone was. So uh, we'll get back to you on that. I do I do know there was one cell phone on the bed. It seems to be ringing a bell in my head that the other cell phone was found like in his jeans pocket or something. 
Um, but I'm not sure about that. So I, I will get back to that. Make sure we circle back to this next week. Um, and I'll try to find the answer to that question. Cause I do only remember the one cell phone that was found on the bed. And then her last question is where's the Canon camera that is missing from the box? The one in front of the open closet where Jim is. I don't know. Just like most of the things Maurice Carpenter had no intention of giving any indication in his report that anything was missing from the house. And it's, it's really, really unfortunate because it makes it so hard for us to piece together what's going on there. Uh, and as we get into future weeks and, and more into the report, you'll see that Liz actually gave them a list. You know, Jim was meticulous about saving owner's manuals and receipts from like everything he owned. And she went through and gave them a bunch of stuff, receipts and paperwork on items that should have been in the house that aren't there anymore. And it just didn't care. All right, Summer says, I apologize if this sounds silly, but how would the knife still have blood on it if it had been sitting in that bathtub overnight? How long does blood stay on something that has been submerged in water? Also, did the white shirt in the tub have blood on it? It Really, there's there's a lot of factors that go into that. You know, it depends if the blood uh, congeals onto something, you know, so how long was the knife out? What was the airflow in the house? So if the blood started to dry, which it will start doing almost immediately, um, clotting and drying when it gets onto something, you know, it could be lots of the blood would rinse off of the knife and then, you know, down by the hilt where it says there's the red marks, you know, down where the, the blade meets the handle, you know, little nooks and crannies. If there are, are thick chunks of blood, um, and it doesn't even have to be blood, other, you know, when you're a stabbing victim, anything like that, there's other body tissues that could get stuck in there as well. Who knows? It's not flowing water. It's just sitting in water. Uh, so think about if you're, if, think about if you're soaking your dishes in the sink. You know, if you got a bunch of gunk on them and you put them in the water, a lot of it will come off. A lot of it will soften up. But if you pick the dish up, you know, the next day, there's probably still some chunks left on there. So I, that's the kind of the best way that I could describe it. Now, the shirt is a little different story if it was taken off and put in into the water. I think that it would be, uh, and I kind of want to do an experiment on this, and I might do it sometime this week. Uh, you know, if you get blood on a shirt, they always tell you soak it in cold water right away. And, and that, that'll help break it down and clean it off uh, so that you can wash the shirt. But when, in my experience, when that's happened to me, that will work. It, it'll look like it's working, and then you wash it, but then when you dry it, you will see it wouldn't look like blood anymore, but you will know a bit of discoloration in areas where the blood is. But, you know, with, the, with it being fabric and porous, and where the water can kind of go in and out of it, unlike the knife where it would be like stuck in a crevice, I think that it could dilute it to the point where you wouldn't see obvious blood, but there may still be blood on it. All right, this one's from Aaron. Did the disturbed sock drawer belong to Jim or Sandy? In the interview, Sandy indicated that she didn't know where Jim kept the gun, and we have been assuming it was somewhere in the closet. But if only one part of the sock drawer was disturbed, it implies the person knew where to look. Could Jim have been keeping the gun in that drawer and retrieved it, or tried to, when he realized there was an intruder? No, I don't think so, and you'll hear more about that on Sunday. Uh, and I don't recall in the interview Sandy saying that she didn't know where Jim kept the gun. I think what she said was that he wouldn't keep it in the safe. She said he was stubborn, he wouldn't keep it in the safe but he did keep it in the closet, and as you'll find out on Sunday, it was, in fact, kept in the closet. As far as whose sock drawer it was, just by the, I, I can only assume by the look of the socks, I would assume Jim's, mm -hmm. you know, because they all looked like men's, you know, they were a lot of black, like, dress-type socks. So I would assume Jim's, but I can't confirm that 100%. Okay, and this one's from Aaron. How did the dogs get out of the breakfast nook since it was still barricaded in the crime scene photos? Would Jim have picked each of them up and lift them over one of the barricades? If he moved the barricades, as I would have done with my four dogs, why would he replace the barricade? Why not just leave it open for when they want to come back out in the morning? 
Where did they usually sleep? If he either did lift them over individually or moved and replaced the barricade, either would suggest he wasn't blitz attacked at the back door. What do you make of that? The back door is a very confusing scene. for I mean, The whole crime scene is confusing, and partially I think that's due to the fact that some things were manipulated in the crime scene photos. Uh, and I don't know if you're going to get into this later, Mike, but, but I'll, I'll kind of address it now. So a few of our listeners noticed as an example of this in the guest bedroom. So if you go to the website and look at the guest bedroom photos, that's where the red cord was found. The red rope in the closet that's like hanging out of this tote, like underneath some clothing or towels or whatever they are. And there's several pictures of the red rope there hanging out, which would look like it was, you know, sticking out like somebody had grabbed it and pulled it out. But then someone noticed that in another photo that was taken from further back, just of the whole room, you can see into the closet and the scene is very different. The rope is tucked back in. It's not visible. There's like a green cloth. Somebody said it was a bag, but it looks like some kind of like a cloth bag if it is is folded neatly on top of the stack of clothes that were on top of the rope. And then in the next in the crime scene photos, the green bag is flipped off, the rope is pulled out, it's made to look like the rope had been hanging out the whole time. Now, I don't know that this was, you know, maybe it was pulled out to take a photo of it to show that where the rope came from when they were collecting it as evidence. It's hard to say because of the way they were put in order. But what we do know is the crime scene photos we have They've been manipulated one way or another. Now, like I said, it could be for a, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying this was done intentionally or anything like that. Um, it very well could have been they took the photos and then they went back and they, after they found the rope and took photos of them removing the rope, but they just got mixed in with the other photos. But it's not mentioned in the report. It's just very odd. But what it does tell us is that the crime scene photos have been manipulated. They're not all entirely accurate, which kind of puts in, it kind of helps explain why this, this, I was telling Mike before we started recording, this crime scene is the most difficult crime scene that I've ever worked with in trying to recreate. And and it's not just the stuff you hear on the show. We do this all the time with other cases, some cases we help people out that aren't for the show or we're screening cases. And it's just so difficult to piece this together. And I wonder if this isn't uh, a reason for it. So then getting back to the question about the barricades, that's another very, very confusing thing because, like you said, the barricades are still intact and the back door is locked. But we've also found some new information out about the back door that I think Mike just told me that he's going to ask about next. But just looking at the barricades, so what does that mean? I don't know. It could be something as simple as when he walked back to the barricade, the little dogs are you know, jumping up on their hind legs, wanting to get over. He just reached over and grabbed them, didn't necessarily have to go outside. Um, or he just stepped over the barricades, or he didn't even make it that far. But then, you know, the dogs are running loose in the house. You know, if the dogs were in there long enough, would they just jump over? You know, if they really put the effort into it, if they'd been if they've been kept out for a long time, I don't know. It's really difficult to say. Uh, it's just again another one of those pieces of the puzzle that we don't have quite put together yet. All right, Sam says a quick point on the back door, specifically the doorknob. It appears that it's been repositioned at some point. You can see the outline from where previous painting has taken place. There could be many reasons for that, but it would suggest that they may have had issues with that door in the past, i.e. wood swelling, door frame shifting, etc., that required remedial work. Could be an explanation for the size of the door jam, gap, and apparent tool marks on the door. That's possible, but there's a lot more going on with the back door. So first of all, I want to point out, I did find, actually Liz found and pointed out to me, uh, that we have, we do have four more pictures of the back door. And what had happened was when I, in order to get ready to do the episodes and write them 
and to put the photos on the website, I had split all 907 or whatever crime scene photos into separate folders for each room. And these four photos had been moved into other folders. So some of them were in the outside folder, and then a couple of them were in the forensics folder because they were dusting for fingerprints. Uh, Those now have been added back onto the website. So that was all from episode 606. So if you go back to uh, our website, go to the case docs for episode 606, those four new photos, hopefully by the time you guys are hearing this, have been added back to the website so you can look at them. But we do have two photos taken from outside. We still don't have any photos of the the spine of the door or the uh, the jam side of the door where the strikers are to see if there's any evidence of tool marks. We do have one photo for taken from a little ways back of the back of the door and then one zoomed in more on the knob. And uh, one thing that I notice is a little odd is the lock where you put your key in in the outside is turned sideways. It's, it's, it's parallel to the ground, and typically they're straight up and down. So that's a little odd. But then the other really concerning one, or, or confusing one, I should say, is on the inside, the one that I had in the forensic folder, is a photo when they dusted that door for prints. And in the photo where they dusted the back door for prints on the inside, the deadbolt is unlocked. So the so the knob in the pictures that we already had, the deadbolt was turned like counterclockwise. So the top was to the left and the strikers out in the door. When they took the fingerprints, the knob is turned clockwise to the right. And now there's a piece of tape over where the striker is, but it's clearly turned in a different position than it is in the other photo. And we don't know what order the photos were taken in. Well, I guess we do in this case because in one of them, the door's clean. And the second one is covered in fingerprint dust. But again, just like the red rope, because the crime scene has been compromised, uh, when things have been moved before photos were taken, it's really hard to confirm that that back door was even locked, if it was for sure and absolutely locked. And I know I've been giving Maurice Carpenter a hard time, but it's, it's, it's so frustrating for me that the, re- that the report was done in the way that it was. You know, you, you can clearly see, hopefully, whether you think that Sandy Melgar's innocent or guilty or was staged or not staged or there was a burglary, it doesn't matter. What I think that we should all be able to agree on is that it was pretty clear that Maurice Carpenter was writing the report with the intention of giving the reader the impression that there was no burglary, leaving things out like the uh, the nightstand with the TV missing from it with the antenna and the other cord there and in the living room with the HDMI cable coming out of the empty space. Uh, the, the jewelry boxes that were not just open but empty, him leaving all that out tells us that he certainly had a bias when writing the report. Given that, and the fact that we have some photos where things are different from one to the other, backdoor, for example, because first of all, you shouldn't be dusted for prints. You shouldn't move something and then dust for prints. So like the door being locked and then unlocked, you don't do that. Every photo you take should be taken without disturbing or touching anything. and then. Any dusting for fingerprints should all be done before anything is touched or moved. Because all it takes is, even with a rubber glove, if you just rub your rubber glove across where there's a fingerprint, you're going to ruin the fingerprint. So it's because it's been compromised, because it's clearly, in my opinion, this this report is intentionally misleading. We know that. And we know we have photos where things have been moved around. And it wasn't documented in the report where it should say things like, in the closet, noticed a red cord in a tote, took photo, removed the cord, took another photo. That It should be documented that way so you know what you're looking at. And so because it wasn't, 
we don't know exactly what happened, but there's a lot more going on with that back door than we thought before, uh, given the fact, and again, this was Sandy and Jim's daughter, Liz, who, who figured, who noticed this, that the lock is locked in one picture and unlocked in another. And like I said, one is before fingerprint dust and one's after fingerprint dust. But at the end of the day, with given everything else, I can't confirm that that door was even locked. All right, Danny wants to know, is there a definitive list of items that were identified as missing from the house? Yeah, and like I think we touched on this earlier in one of the earlier questions. But yeah, there was, and we're going to get into that. But uh, the police were supplied with an exact list of certain items that the family knows for a fact are missing. Okay, and Rebecca says, when Jim and Sandy went to the CVS, did they use cash? Also, did they fill any prescriptions? CVS doesn't seem like the first place I'd go for alcohol and mixers, so I'm wondering if it was a two birds, one stone convenience to go there. And then along those same lines, listener Fred wants to know if they paid cash or credit at Los Cucos. He says if they paid cash, it would just about prove some cash was stolen from their house. Yeah, and both these listeners asked really good questions, and I went and looked at the photos that we have of the receipts, not the ones that we have in the crime scene photos, but we have some from when we were in the DA's office. Mr. Rose that was there let us take photos of those couple pieces of evidence, and we'll get those up on the website. But after looking at them closely, I don't think that the Melgars did have any cash. And I know that the family said that they typically did carry cash. But so Los Cucos was paid for with a credit card, not out of the ordinary at a restaurant, you know, with a bill that's $20, $30 or whatever it was. But what got me was at the CVS, they only bought the two items. They were just the mixers, some Sprite and Coke. The total bill was $2.40, and Jim used a debit or a credit card to purchase those. So to me, if you, if you go to anywhere to buy something and it's $2.40, if you have any cash on you, you're not going to pull out your credit or debit card for 2 bucks. So I think that's probably a good indicator. I mean, we don't know for certain, but it's, it's a good indicator that they probably or maybe didn't have cash on them. But the other thing we have to consider is Sandy waited in the car while Jim went in. It could have been Sandy had cash in her purse, and Jim didn't, and so he used his credit card. So we really don't know. Uh, as far as CVS, like I said, they didn't get anything besides Coke and Sprite, uh, so they didn't pick up any prescriptions or anything like that. But you know, it's I don't think it's out of the ordinary to stop there for you know Becky and I just stopped at a CVS on on Saturday for batteries, so just because you know it's one of those places if you're driving by, they kind of have everything. All right, and Greg's got a few questions for us. First, can we further clarify the dining room chair found in Jim's closet? This was not the chair used by the small dog to get on the bed, correct? The dog used the smaller plastic seat. Can we determine through the family where the padded dining room chair was normally kept? In the bedroom, family room, or dining room? So actually, the dining room chair was the one that was used for the dogs. Uh, according to the family... Uh, and as a matter of fact, from Sandy in the letter she just sent me, because she's been getting kind of updates from people uh, that are writing to her and stuff, telling her about the podcast, and they they asked about that. So she wrote to me to tell me uh, the same thing that Liz had told me, which is the dining room chair was kept right next to the bed for the they, only one of their dogs. They had a Pomeranian that they couldn't get all the way up onto the bed. And so that's that's why it was there. The No question, according to Sandy and the rest of the family, the dining room chair was kept there specifically for the Pomeranian to get on the bed. The white plastic shower chair was kept in the closet, and that's what Jim would sit on when he was getting dressed or putting his shoes on or shining his shoes. So the dining room chair is not out of place. The shower chair is out of place because, like I said, normally it was kept in the closet. Instead, it was positioned behind the chair. 
And there's a little bit more to talk about with that chair, but uh, I know we have a section where Mike's going to go over. He told me uh, things that listeners have noticed in crime scene photos that we may have missed before. So we're, we're going to circle back to that at some point after the break. Okay. And he says, also, can you confirm the chair Sandy used in her closet was normally located within the closet? Looking at the photos, it would seem that this chair would subsequently block access no matter where you put it. Yeah, according to her and to Liz, that chair was always kept in the closet. That's where she would sit on it when she was getting dressed or putting lotion on her legs or whatever. But uh, yeah, it seems like it'd be kind of a tight squeeze, but that's where it was kept, according to them. And then his last question, do we know what types of prescription drugs the Melgars normally had in the house? Were there any medications that are commonly valuable either for sale or an addict? There were, uh, and I don't have all the, the names right now, but we've been through this before. I mean, there were narcotics that Sandy was prescribed and, um, you know, the different medications for the seizures and the, and the pain she had with her lupus and her hip replacement. So I'm sure if you look at the crime scene photo, you see there's prescription bottles everywhere. She had a lot of different prescriptions. And yes, uh, several of them had a pretty high street value. And to continue on from that, one thing that at least now, maybe when we get into the forensic reports, it'll list it more. One thing Maurice never does is talk about what's in each prescription and if there's any missing. That's just another absolute just irritation, frustration, because that's these are huge details. If you're trying to figure out what happened, that's a piece of the puzzle you need. You should be looking at every bottle. This bottle was aspirin and it's full. This bottle was oxycotton and it's empty. Or maybe you go through and all of the pill bottles that are left are all non-narcotic, non-street value, but there's nothing, say for example, um, and I'm not saying this is the case, but just as an example, let's say Sandy had a prescription for Oxycontin that had been filled regularly uh, and filled recently. And when you go through all the prescription bottles that are in the house, there's no bottle of Oxycontin because we would assume that, you know, a burglar is not going to, you know, empty out the pills into their hand or something and then put the bo- empty bottle back. They're probably just going to take the whole bottle. Um, but that's another thing that just wasn't done. We don't have a good inventory of what was in the house. And that was a huge, huge miss by Maurice Carpenter. All right. Erica says that after looking at the jewelry box in Liz's old room, she doesn't necessarily agree that the jewelry box had been picked through. She says that her jewelry box at home looks much the same way. What do you think? Well, several people have pointed out that the box was probably kept open with the outside doors open because the, and, and they're, I think they're right. Because, again, it's all costume jewelry, but there's necklaces draped over one of the, the doors from the front. But then the drawer is pulled out, and then, of course, there's jewelry on you know the desk around it and on the floor there, indicating that it had been tampered with. But then somebody had also pointed out last week on the fan page that if you look closely at the pictures, you can see that it was just moved probably that night recently because there's dust. You could, you could, you could see where uh, that table was dusted, but they didn't get underneath the jewelry box, and you can see the dust under it. But you can see a clean, fresh line that looked like knuckles uh, from where someone reached in there and pulled open the jewelry box. Uh, so it, it and, and there's also some some spots in the dust inside the box where somebody was kind of rummaging through it. So you can tell very, very recently because there's lines in the dust. It looks like fresh lines in the dust that it had, in fact, been tampered with. Whether it was you know a, a staging or an intruder, somebody opened that drawer and and rummaged through that box. Is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, we made all the crime scene photos available to listeners on our website in hopes that more eyes may find more details. And we have a few details that you and I didn't catch that the listeners did. All right, let's hear them. Listener Adam noticed that one of Sandy's high heels in the shoe holder in the closet is backwards and that Sandy's glasses are on the floor in the closet facing down. He also noticed watermarks on the edge of the bathtub. So kind of the big reveal there is the glasses. And they're very hard to see if you look at the photos of the crime scene in the closet, in the master bathroom closet where Sandy was found. I didn't notice them. They blend right into the pile of clothes they're sitting on. But he is absolutely right. If you zoom in, her glasses are laying on the floor. And I think he said upside down or whatever direction said they were laying, they're they're laying on the top. And he pointed out in his comment that it looks like if somebody like rolled over onto their right side and was hit on the head or whatever, and the glasses came off, how they would kind of fall off and lay right there. But, and then you notice in the photos uh, that I don't think we've gotten to yet, we're going to get to this Sunday of Sandy uh, that was taken by the police at the crime scene. She's not wearing glasses, and she does wear glasses. So that was a really good catch. The high heel is, you know, so what it is, it's one of those things that kind of hang on the door, and you, you stick your shoes all in them. And one of the high heels, and it's the one right above the glasses, is turned backwards. So all the other ones have the heels pointed out. This one has the heel pointed in. That could be nothing, could be something, considering where it is. But it was another really good catch. And then the watermarks in the tub, uh, that's something that you and I had noticed at one point. Because I said, and it's, I mean, it sounds gross, but if you look at it, it, it almost looks like somebody's bottom. They had sat on the edge of the tub. Right. Um, could have been an arm. Uh, but it's, so if you look at the crime scene photos right next to where the strawberries are at and you look, you'll see there's a mark there where it looks like water marks, almost like if there was foam on somebody's body or their arm or something that they put right there on the edge of the, the tub. So good catch, Adam. A couple of listeners noted that the TV antenna in the bedroom doesn't appear to be able to reach where the TV would have been on the nightstand. Another good catch. The antenna is sitting there and the cord is going toward the nightstand where the TV is located, and there's no TV there, so that's a good indicator, but I hadn't really thought about the fact that it doesn't quite reach, which caused me to go back and look a little closer, and where the antenna is sitting doesn't make much sense either, because it's like sitting, it's like a bay window, and it's sitting on the window leaning against the the blinds, which, you know, it's possible, but it's a little odd uh, that it's laying there, so could mean a couple of things, you know, personally, I think that it was wherever it was, it was probably just moved out of the way, you know, just, you know, when they're, when they're pulling the TV out, you know, cause 32 inch TV is small enough. You can put it under your arm, but it's not, but it's not small, you know, it's a good size TV. So if they were moving it and they just, you know, they just grabbed it and set it to the side, that looks like that could make some sense. But then there was something else that someone else caught there. I don't know if you have it, the, the coat hanger. Yeah. I got that right here from listener Greg. 
so Greg noticed, or someone noticed, and Greg mentioned it on the fan page, that above the TV, and I completely missed this too, so behind that nightstand, there is a framed picture, and on top of that frame, there's a like a wire coat hanger hanging, which would have been, if there was a TV there, right above the TV, and hanging off of it looks like some kind of green ribbon or something, which is super, super strange, because just with the nightstand there, you couldn't really access that corner. If there was a TV there, you really couldn't get to it. So why is that there? Uh, and some people suggested, and I think it's a possibility, that maybe the antenna was hanging from that coat hanger. But again, that's, you know, it's really, for, with all the decorations and stuff they had, it's pretty out of place. Well, there was a loop in the antenna, right? It looked like maybe there was a loop in the top of the antenna. Like, so if it, it's, it's sitting upright, but if maybe it was turned sideways, it could have been hanging from that ribbon. I don't know. But, but these are definitely things that I hadn't noticed before. And... Uh, you know, hopefully we can get some more eyes on them. Maybe we can figure out what exactly is going on there. Then listener Danny noticed the glass of water on the nightstand where we believe the TV used to be located, which could indicate something. What do you think? Yeah, we actually had noticed the glass of water there, and and I, I guess I just didn't mention it in the report. But Marissa, Herman and Maria's daughter, said that that glass of water is the glass of water that she went to get for Sandy. So if you remember in the interview with Maria and, and Herman, Maria said she asked, Marissa to go get a glass of water for Sandy. And she said, that's the glass of water. She just set it right there on the nightstand. And Marina wants to know, would somebody really bother to steal a 32-inch TV? She says you can pick them up fairly cheap nowadays. Well, yeah, nowadays you can. So we're in 2018, yeah, you can pick up a 32-inch TV pretty. You can pick up a 47-inch TV or a 52-inch TV pretty cheap. But remember, this is 2012. So in 2012, flat-screen TVs weren't, you know, Super new, but they were a lot more expensive six years ago than they are now. And a 32-inch flat screen TV back then, probably new, cost you five, six, seven hundred dollars. You know, whereas now you could probably pick one up on a Black Friday sale for 150, 200 bucks. But it wasn't the case back in 2012. So we have to keep that in mind when we're wondering what someone would take. All right, Diana noticed that on the dining room chair that Colleen Barnett found so mysterious that's next to the bed. There's actually a blue blanket draped over it that's covered in white dog fur. Just for me, this would seem to corroborate what Liz said about them using the chair for their Pomeranian to jump onto the bed. Right. So this is, we mentioned we were going to circle back to this. Yeah. So remember, Liz and Sandy both said this chair was there specifically for the Pomeranian to get on. And it was a little white Pomeranian. There's actually pictures of it in the crime scene photos. And yeah, if you look at, the, at that picture in the crime scene photos, it's very clear. There's a blue blanket that looks like it's kept over that chair. It wasn't just tossed over the chair. And it's covered in white dog fur. So. Again, that would seem to corroborate that it's not so mysterious as to why that chair was there. And then Sheila pointed out that it looks like there's the lid to the candle burning on Jim's nightstand on the bathroom countertop. This one is a huge, huge, huge catch. And I, I think this is the same Sheila that caught the, the garage door thing when we were at the meetup. Yeah, the one we met in Houston. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing I thought was, you know, just because it's a lid doesn't mean they go together. But if you zoom in and look, at the candle, the one that's still burning on Jim's nightstand, there's a there's a distinct pattern on it, and it's metal. The the container the candle's in is metal, and then you go look on the would be the west wall sink uh, or countertop next to the sink. There's a metal lid there, and if you zoom in on it, it's the same pattern and same size as that candle. So this starts to throw us for a big loop, and it's something we really need to consider. We may be looking at this crime scene all wrong. If we couple in a couple of things like 
the red rope that we know was moved in the crime scene photos, the door, the back door that was locked and unlocked. We don't know for sure if it was left locked or if it had been unlocked the whole time. We have a lot of questions there. The way Maurice Carpenter wrote the report, uh, the barricades, uh, add some questions. And then we add in, couple this candle with the drink that's on the treadmill and the lid to the candles in the bathroom. So knowing that, first of all, that tells me there is a high likelihood that Jim made it to his bedroom and maybe never even went out into the living room uh, or by the back door to get the dogs. So imagine that candle, we presume, likely started off in the bathroom because that's where the lid is. He gets out of the tub. He's holding his drink, grabs the candle, walks into the bedroom, sets his drink down on the treadmill, and then goes to either light the candle or if it was already lit to go put it next to the nightstand. So that's that's his nightstand, and it's right next to the corner of the bed where the mattress had been picked up, and there's the sex toys there under the pillow. So all of a sudden now we have what's, what's potentially a completely different set of circumstances than we were considering before. Maybe Jim didn't go let the dogs in. Maybe he started to, and he set his drink down so he could go get the sex toys out and, and set the candle up and pull the stool out of his closet. Out Maybe he was going to give Sandy a massage. I, I don't know, and I'm certainly not saying that that's what happened, but what it is a huge indicator to me, and this was an awesome, huge catch by Sheila, is that Jim took that candle, or someone took the candle from the bathroom and put it on his nightstand in the bedroom. The fact that it's there by the stool with the, the mattress picked up, with the sex toys right there, it's a pretty good indicator that he made it there. So so I don't know. I think this is something I would love to see some more discussion about this on the fan page. If you guys aren't on it, please get on it because I'm just this crime scene is baffling me. I'm, I'm going to be straight up honest with you guys. This crime scene is baffling me right now. And this is just another huge question mark is how that candle got there. I do know, I don't know if you have a question about this, Mike, but a lot of people were asking about the candle still burning and it couldn't have been burning very long. And I've done a little bit of checking from people I know that sell candles and uh, it, it all depends on the quality of the candle. But they say, you know, a container like that in a metal container, and if you look at the candle in the picture, the wax is completely liquefied. So there's probably still an inch and a half of wax still in the, the candle container, in the metal container, but it is liquefied from top to bottom, whereas normally when you light a candle, even if you burn it for a couple of hours, it's only liquefied on the top. This is completely liquefied all the way down, uh, and so you know, it would be the difference if you bought just you know, an, an inexpensive candle at a, you know, uh, at a box store somewhere, or if you bought like a Yankee candle, or, you know, or the same thing if you use like tarts, whether it's like a Scentsy thing or just some cheap generic one. They're going to burn and they're going to last differently. So, so the fact that the candle's still burning uh, most definitely isn't any indication that it had been lit recently. It definitely could have you know burned like that for I've I've been told you know twenty four to even forty eight hours they could burn before all that wax evaporates if it's a high quality candle. All right, this one's from Melissa. She says since we theorized that the intruders weren't parked in the driveway and needed to call for the getaway car. Would it be worthwhile to check cell towers in the area for the time period, say, between 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. the night of the murder, just to see if any calls pinged close by during that time? Is that even possible? It was definitely possible in 2012. I would think. I mean, I just, I don't know if it's still possible, but it's another frustration. And I hadn't thought about this, but it's, that's a great idea. 
may lead to nothing, may lead to something. But in 2012, with the technology of, of GPS and cell phones, even then, yeah, it would have been huge to check the cell towers to see who was calling in and out at that time that were pinging towers right there uh, and may have given us some answers, at least given us some leads and viable suspects. But again, there's another indicator that they never were interested in anyone being a suspect except Sandy Melgar. Marissa says, is there anything in the investigation that points it to being personal? It almost seems someone knew where to look, and also the stabbing was a little over the top for a stranger. Could that explain an ex-family member or someone the family knows? It's hard to say. I don't, as I I mentioned a little bit in last week's follow-up, I don't think that the actual manner of the killing is any indicator of a personal relationship, um, given that, like I said, this is not over. It doesn't mean there wasn't one. But there's not like those telltale signs of a very personal grudge killing where it's just repeated overkill stabbing. That's not what, and you'll see that when we get to the ME's report. But what from what I've already told you, you know, this was just, he was fighting, someone was stabbing him. They weren't connecting as deeply as they wanted to because he was blocking them. He has cuts all over his arms and hands. And his injuries would have taken him several minutes to even collapse, not much less die. Uh, and, and so the, the repeated stabs were because he was still fighting. There, there are some interesting things, though, you know, when you're thinking about why was this house selected, if someone had like a personal relationship with them or knew something about them, the safe was in the, the closet right there. The gun was in the closet right there, the prescription pills and stuff like that. But then again, if you look at if this was, in fact, a burglary where everything was picked through, you know, the armoire with the paperwork in it is a pretty good indicator to me that someone at least didn't know what was kept in that room because why would they be looking in their file cabinet for valuables? Uh, So I don't know. We got more to go, but I I definitely don't think in my opinion that the manner or mechanism of the, of the actual kill itself is any kind of indicator that someone had a personal relationship, but we still need to do a lot more in victimology to really know what motives we could be looking for there. All right, Adam says, loaded question, and one that may be answered later, but why do we think the police or prosecution honed in on Sandy as they did? Another case of needing to, quote, get their conviction numbers up? I don't know. I mean, that seems to be the case a lot of the time. But really, all it takes is just one detective with a theory. And We see this happen, wrongful convictions, if that's in fact what this is, usually because someone is doing a theory-based investigation rather than evidence-based. What you're supposed to do is gather, 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 analyze, gather, analyze, gather, develop a theory from the evidence. What's happened here, whether they landed in the right spot or not, is that they started with a theory and then they tried to find evidence to fit the theory and ignored evidence that didn't fit the theory. And that's where you run into this happening. The motives for that could have been just to solve the case or it could be legitimate that one of the detectives or a couple of the detectives got to talking and said, man, there's, you know, the, the doors are all locked. There's no signs of forced entry, and she's saying she doesn't know what happened. She did it. You know, that's all it takes is, is say me and you, Mike, are the two detectives, and, and we just had that conversation, and it's like, man, it looks like she did it. And then it just snowballs from there. Right. You know, it's just, it's just not having the proper motivation, not using proper uh, investigation techniques. And, and clearly, like as I said at the beginning of this episode, there were not proper investigation techniques used, whether it's the, the way they took the photos, the way they documented the report. Um, even in the interview when Sandy's telling them she wants a lawyer and they're just hammering, hammering home on her. And eventually we're going to play the second half of her interview. Uh, and you'll hear it even more. It's, it's pretty brutal. Uh, it's, it's very clear to me that they had their mind made up right at the beginning. I don't know why other than it might've just been as Colleen Barnett said, 
It just doesn't make sense. Marcus says, is there any way we can find out how the family in the similar house invasion was bound? Maybe there are similarities to be found. Not yet, at least for me, not yet. But that's something that I'm going to be looking into very heavily. I've kind of started that process. And there's some other people connected to the case that have already started doing some digging there. But we're going to hear much more about that, I hope, very soon. We've already got a little bit more information, and it's already starting to look like, I'll just say this, these two MOs are really, really, really similar. And, and one thing I will, I'll, I'll point this out. One thing we do know for sure. Um, there were some people that emailed about it, and they're saying, why would you say these are similar? You know, this is in Kingston, I think it was, which is 23 miles away, um, which is uh, northeast Houston, uh, or northeast of Houston. And so it's not even close, so they, they can't be related. Well, we do know that the one woman that was that was arrested, uh, that was caught, who didn't, at least at that time, didn't flip on any of the other four or five guys that were involved or people that were involved, we know where she lived at the time. She lived in southwest Houston, so southwest of even Sandy and Jim's house. So if you're looking on a map, if you take where this person that committed the robbery lived and where the robbery occurred and drew a straight line and right in the middle of it, would be Sandy and Jim's house. Wow. So, you know, she traveled all the way up to Northeast Houston to commit this robbery. So to think that she wouldn't go a shorter distance or the crew, if the rest of the crew was from that same area, they wouldn't go half the distance to Sandy and Jim's neighborhood. No, that doesn't, the, the, the geographic location of it doesn't matter. And again, it's Houston and we drove in Houston. Driving in Houston sucks. Yeah. I mean, it just it doesn't takes, matter where you're going. Yeah. It just takes for it costs you $500 and to in, in two hours to get anywhere in Houston because every single road's a toll road. <laughs> All right. Listener Pamela compared some of the crime scene photos to Sandy's statement, and she has a few points to make. First, she says, seeing these photos is pretty telling to me and that much of the scene matches up with Sandy's interview with the detectives. For instance, her brown boots are near the TV in the bedroom. Her statement sounds like she doesn't realize it's gone. Let me stop you right there for a second, because that was a really, really big one, because we've started this process ourselves, going through and comparing her statement to what's on the crime scene. And if she staged this scene and she's lying, I'll, I'll say this. She's a criminal mastermind if she yeah. did that, because she is giving, and from what Jim Clemente, who listened to this, said that you know her emotional responses are accurate, they what I would, or what I would expect, and we're hoping to get Jim to come on and do a profile at some point, but... She, in my opinion, gives no indicators whatsoever of deception when she says little things like that in passing that I took my boots off by the TV in the bedroom. She doesn't say by the nightstand where the TV usually is. Where where I'm going with that, and I think that's where she's going with that, is she doesn't know the TV's not there. She hasn't realized the TV's not there anymore, and that's, that's huge. Her next point is there are fuzzy slippers and a towel near Jim. She said he wore a towel, and she thinks he put her fuzzy shoes on to get the dogs. Right, another huge one, and that's she's exactly right. When she described it in the interview, she said he wrapped himself up in a towel, and I think she said, I think that he put on my fuzzy slippers when he went. And again, right there by his body is the towel and the fuzzy slippers. Next, there is still toilet paper in the toilet. She said she got out of the tub, went to the bathroom, then got back into the tub. True, but I, I don't necessarily think that that really tells anything because remember, she went to the bathroom uh, after she cleaned herself up before the either before or while the paramedics were there dealing with her. So she had gone to the bathroom again then. So I don't know that we can really draw any conclusions from that one, but it's, it's a good catch too. Next, her blue robe is on the floor on top of Jim's shirt and underwear. She said she put on a robe to dry off after getting out of the tub. 
Yeah, that's right. And uh, does she have any more or is that it? That's it. So we're going to get into this and something I've been planning to do in a future episode once we're done with the entire crime scene is to get you the second half of Sandy's interview. And then we're going to do an analysis where we go point by point by point and see if we can match up the things she's saying with what we're finding on the crime scene. Also, listener Abby Scott has put together a YouTube video tracking the movements of the Melgars on the day they found Jim and Sandy. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, Abby did an awesome job. So it kind of gives the overview, this new video. And if you just look up on YouTube, uh, the Melgars La Noche is what she titled it. Uh, and I think her, her YouTube channel is called Crime Tracer. Yeah. But the Melgars La Noche, it's about a four-minute video. It kind of gives an overview, shows some pictures of the house, and then does, as she did with the West Memphis 3 video she made, it tracks where, because it's pretty confusing in that episode where we went over the movements of Herman and Maria and Monica and Marissa. Yeah, because there's so much going on. Yeah, and a lot happening at the same time. So she tracks all that in the video. She did a really good job. Look it up on YouTube. Uh, I've already pinned it to the top of the fan page as an announcement. And I'll try to remember to get it out on, on Twitter and Instagram and on the Main Truth and Justice page as well so everybody can get a look at it. All right, and then a couple of people commented on the music in 607. They said it was a little loud. And Bob, I think Shane addressed that on the fan page. Yeah, and I haven't had a chance to get with Shane on it either. He said that he had um, people had told him that they couldn't quite hear the music when they were in their car. And so he was just trying to make an adjustment so that people could hear it. And uh, it seemed like it got, it got a little bit too loud on this one. I, I actually kind of noticed it too. It was louder than I liked to hear. It was a little hard to hear, depending on which listen, if you had headphones or earbuds or in a vehicle. But Shane's aware of it, and he realized it was a little loud, so we'll make sure we make that correction. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. All right, and to close things out, we've got a voicemail. And to be honest with you, I want to make sure we put this one out there because he mentions Joe Rogan, and I'm a huge fan. Hey, guys. Love the show. Uh, it's been fun watching the stuff that's been happening with Ed. It's really moving. Do you think it would help his exoneration if we could get his story out to some large like, news sources, like national news sources, or somebody like Rogan? Uh, let me know what you think. Thanks, guys. Well, yeah, I don't think he left his name on there, but yeah, I, I would love to see it picked up. You know, We did have, for anybody that wasn't following on social media, Michael Hall, who is a huge writer for Texas Monthly, uh, if you just go to Texas Monthly and look for the article, did a very long, amazingly well-researched piece on Ed's release uh, that came out the day before he got released. So I would highly recommend reading that. It's it's really, really well done. And again, very well-researched, which was a nice change after watching the Deadly Women episode. And I, I just don't know how... I'm not good at marketing myself. So I don't know how we get the story out to national media you know but but if anybody has any connection with any news sources that want to cover ed's story you know because we're not done with ed you know we've got a lot more work to do on his case uh to to fight for his actual innocence and you know we've we've come this far largely due to the pressure put on the prosecutor's office 
because of all of you and all the attention on the case. So if anybody has connections that can help tell Ed's story and the Nationals outlet, and then like Joe Rogan, that would be huge. Joe Rogan has a massive, massive audience. And I'll be honest with you, I would love to sit down and talk to Joe Rogan. And I don't know how that process works, but one thing I've seen happen before, any of you that are on Twitter, just tweet at Joe Rogan and just tell him, hey, you should interview Bob Ruff. With, and this is a shameless plug because I just want to go meet Joe Rogan at this point. Yeah. You know, We'll talk about Ed, but I want to go meet Joe Rogan um, and be on the show. But it'd be really cool if a lot of you guys go tweet to Joe Rogan and just tell him you know, that it would be a good interview to talk about um, not just Ed's case, but criminal justice reform. It would, in, in all seriousness, would be a good place to get another huge platform because Joe is, is massive in the podcast world to talk about some of the work that we do and um, to have that platform to talk about criminal justice reform and to tell Ed's story. So, yeah, please go ahead and do that. And if you have any connections to any, any national media sources, let's make that to help get Ed's story out there. And that's it for today. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, everybody. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. That's right. That's you gonna talk? Okay, sorry. That's right, Bob. We're gonna switch it back over to the Melgard case. Wow, you see that? (laughs) (laughs) This man is stepping up.
right. <laughs> <laughs> 10 seconds of silence. And you're on. You want to stop laughing? I'm not laughing. All right. He said from back in the day, he's playing the game last week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> kind of mean. <laughs> kind of mean. All right. Uh... Leftover Blue Apron. Mike had for lunch. Go ahead. All right. You just take me out of focus. You know? I'm sorry. I apologize. Jeez. All right. Is Bert? I can hear you breathing. I can hear you breathing. Whenever I talk, you're. Her first question is: Is the white T-shirt that? Yeah, I totally agree with you there, Bob. <laughs> Seamless isn't working out. <laughs> I, I think you're fine until you put Bob at the end of it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Ready? Yeah. Sorry, dude. Family in this similar house invasion was... In the similar house invasion? Thanks, Einstein. That was mean as hell. <laughs> what an asshole. <laughs> I was trying to fucking help. <coughs> Damn. <laughs> it was mean. That was I so mean. Every day. Cut him right down. Oh, it's all right. Here we go. <laughs> I was just kidding. I was seriously, I was 100% just joking. <laughs> okay. Marcus says, Is there any way we can find out how the family in the similar how it <laughs> made it through the word similar, though? Right. Well, thanks, everybody. Or something. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> What's well, <it's> perfect? <laughs> Such a long. We still got to record with Shane. <laughs>